the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that just this very afternoon Amanda ate some fresh river fish. Just went out and caught it myself, walked on down to the local river, threw in my line, got a nice juicy one. Nice. I hope that it was not full of pollution. I mean, it's real. That's a misconception. I mean, you've obviously been taken in the propaganda. That's a huge misunderstanding. the The rivers near <laughs> us are not polluted at all. Fresh fish. Oh. You can basically mm-hmm. cut it up sushi style. Nice. Did you offer Raw. to give it to one of your friends? No. Ever since a, a very inconsiderate coworker started microwaving fish at my office, uh, <laughs> I've decided to never give, take, or receive fish as a gift. <laughs> <laughs> That's an ethical principle I now, you know, live my life by. Um, so, I think no. I think it's a pretty good one. <laughs> it is. Don't bring fish in public, especially if you're going to microwave it. Raw fish, whatever, but microwave? Come on, that's a crime. That should be a crime. If you have no idea why we're talking about donating, giving, receiving fish, or eating freshwater fish, that is because you've stumbled upon a book club episode. These are analytical deep dive episodes into a book that we've been reading. Today's book club episode will be about the novel A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. Uh, Or is it Egan? It's probably Egan, right? I've been pronouncing it Egan, but Egan, E G A N. Jennifer Egan again. It's a visit from the Goon Squad. Also, it's a novel, but also it's not. It's a weird. It's hard to. It could be a difficult <laughs> book to pin down for sure. Um, it's a very jumpy novel, uh, jumping from point of view to point of view. Book Club episodes, as I mentioned, will be a deep dive spoiler one, so today we'll be discussing the first half of the book. Our Book Club episodes are always split in half, in in that we split the book in half, I mean. So today we'll be discussing chapters, did we decide one through eight? Is that it? Yes, yep. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay, chapters one through eight. And yeah, that's what we'll be up to today. We are, as I mentioned at the top, the Lightly Literary Podcast. If you still don't follow us on Instagram or Facebook, we always ask that you do. It helps get, you know, get the word out there. That's where we post promotions for the book clubs we're doing and books that we review and recommend. So yeah, if you're not on our social feeds, check us out there. We're on, again, Instagram and Facebook, and it's just at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word, so it's easy to track us down and, yeah, see what we're up to and keep up. Amanda, the drawings, it might happen. It might happen this winner i think it's close i'm currently three behind which i've been before and then i fell further back we shall see i'm i'm like so far behind on the drinks (laughs) wait 20 or so is that what 25 (laughs) yeah yeah something like that (laughs) i think the key for that promotion is to just not make the drink but just show a picture of a thing you drank so like Mm. here's a glass of water today that's this book. Yes. All right. See you tomorrow for <laughs> orange juice. I think that might be the method. Anyway, we do we do post on our social media feeds, I promise. So keep up with us there. Again, at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. Um, let's dive into Visit from the Goon Squad. Uh, any content warnings you could think of for chapters one through eight? There is some sexual stuff that happens, but like discussions of affairs and some sex but not graphic, so I couldn't think of any. Yeah, I would say, well, there's a mention of a suicide, but it's not explained in detail, and, like, the only sex thing that might make people uncomfortable is, like, um, Ray's um, sex experience with the dude, with Lou, kind of, like, getting head in front of her oh yeah i almost kind of forgot about that yeah yeah there's some yeah. public public sex 
Yeah, though it is, is consensual but exploitative. <laughs> I think by some states' definitions, it would be illegal. So I don't. But yeah. even that's kind of unclear at the time. Okay, yeah. So maybe some maybe some statutory sex crime stuff that we might yeah. get into. But yeah. it, the, it's odd though. That's us imposing that on the book. The book does not treat it like that, though. It does later treat it like kind of an exploitation. Um, so it's worth yeah. yeah, it's worth bringing up. Okay. Any other content warnings or thoughts on this? I don't think so. Okay. Well, let's start with our first segment then, which will be extremely impossible, but it will make us look like fools, and maybe that's the fun all along. That's podcasting for you. <laughs> um, this will be the hardest part of the whole podcast. Yeah, right I think here. so. So for book clubs, we do want to be sensitive to people who maybe haven't been reading with us or just want to recap on what this book was about and what what it's been about so far. So our first segment is the 60-second summary challenge, where each of us gets 60 seconds to summarize what we've read so far and see what comes out in this incoherent rambling. (laughs) And I will continue (laughs) to go first since I... Since when we kind of reformatted the pod, this was my idea to keep some kind of plot stuff in or some kind of plot summary stuff in. So I guess I'll try, Amanda. Do you have a one-minute timer ready? I can also time myself, too, if you're... I'm not sure what your setup is. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Give me one second. I can... No, I can just time myself. It's fine. It's okay. I'm good. You just tell me when. Okay. Are you You on to tell you when? No, I can... I'll I'll start and I'll count down from three. Just trying to make it easy on you. Um, And then, yeah, I'll... I'll do my best. I'm not going to know any characters' names. <laughs> okay. Oh, God. <laughs> I'll go I'll go after on, on zero. So three, two, one, zero. There's a record executive who's kind of washed out, and he wants to get back in the game. He's super rich and successful. He has an assistant who's a kleptomaniac and is going to therapy for it, and they work together really well and closely. This novel then spins off based on their point of views to just multiple characters who they've interacted with over time. So we learn about the mentor of this record executive named Lou. Lou is an exploitative kind of horny old man who attracts this young woman and sort of traps her. He gets married multiple times and then gets old and almost dies. We also meet a publicist that worked with one of these people. I can't remember who. She ends up working for a dictator and tries to do a PR campaign for the dictator. Uh, We also meet the wife of the record executive, the original one who's Benny, now that I think of it. Also some old bandmates of Benny come around the story and they're depressed and eating fish from the river. His wife is disillusioned in their marriage and is a sad housewife now and it's basically a spiral from this record executive all the people in his life Done. and yeah that's actually not bad <laughs> that was better than yeah, i imagined was, yeah <laughs> okay yeah, yeah maybe maybe novels that have no chronology or don't go chronologically are easier to summarize <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> if, was, if you yeah that, that was, was really my, good, actually. That was my stream. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I left anyone out. We'll see, I guess, in yours, because um, you, you'll be up next. We'll see if you cover anything I left out or get some details I missed. Okay. Are you ready? Ooh, yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Tell me when. I'll, I'll count you down. You can start on zero. Yeah. Three, two, yeah. one, zero. Sasha begins the novel. She's the first one, and she's actually Benny's assistant, who he's kind of in love with. And she also says that she depends on him. She's the kleptomaniac, um, and she's just unsatisfied with life. Benny is also unsatisfied and feels like even though he's the CEO, he sold shares. He's he still uh, feels kind of old. Um, and he's also struggling with some impotence issues, which is why he's obsessed with intaking uh, gold flakes. 
and then we also get to see his wife, whom she's destroyed because possibly he's cheated on her. Um, and there's also flashbacks to when Benny was a kid with his friend Rhea, who was in love with him, but he was in love with Alice. And then Scotty got Alice, so Benny disbanded the group or whatever um and then jocelyn who um was with lou who was the one who kind of mentored uh benny into the music business um and then we also have ladal who's the one with the dictator um she's her life is falling apart after a a party accident um and and she's yeah not bad (laughs) i'd say between the both of us is has been the tendency with this we could slap together some kind of plot summary there (laughs) by our powers combined a captain planet style exercise yeah that's wild that is a difficult one but i think we covered most of the major characters were there any segments that we left out let's see here we had i don't think so well scotty's the fish guy his life is falling apart because he divorced alice but yeah but we don't know about the interim there it's kind of a strange yeah kind of interesting one like fully disappeared Despite this book having a, I think, purposefully strange and kind of obtuse structure and plot to it, it clearly is about Benny and then just everyone in Benny's orbit. He's the through line so far of every character. Even the Ladal, who doesn't seem to know him directly, she knows his wife, right? It was like his wife's kind of boss. So even that connects to Benny. Yeah, Benny, the record producer. Okay. Well, that's enough plot summary, I think. We've probably confused people rightly. But, you know, we hit the basics. It's a, it's a lot of different characters. And you could, I, you can't call this a short story connection because the themes and the characters are too interconnected. But, I mean, but you could. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, it's, like, almost structured like it, for sure. Yeah, I think most of these would stand alone. Though I hadn't, I hadn't been doing that thought exercise while I read. Though, now looking back, I really think you could pull some of these out and give no context and they would still make sense i think scotty's would for sure and uh ladal's dolly's would yeah ladal's really would yeah um intriguing yeah i think they each have their own little story arcs they they each have a conflict and they they all definitely have a conclusion to that conflict whether it's positive or negative most of them are negative um yeah, yeah I would say that most of them could stand alone for sure. Yeah, certainly. Well, let's dive into some quotes. Our next segment up for Book Club Part 1s is going to be some quotes for diving in deep and getting some clarifying ideas going. Um, do you want to go first? Your quote, at least the first one I see up here, is from early on, very early. Yep, super early on. Yeah. Um, this is from Sasha, the, the kleptomaniac, um, who is Benny's assistant and perhaps great love um <laughs> yeah and not um, to her so it's yeah <laughs> uh so the the quote is the plumber was an old man tufts of gray on his head and within a minute boom he'd hit the floor and crawled under her bathtub like an animal fumbling its way into a familiar hole the fingers he'd groped toward the bolts t- behind the tub were grimed to cigar stubs and reaching made his sweatshirt hike up exposing a soft white back Sasha turned away, stricken by the old man's abasement, anxious to leave for her temp job. So I thought that that was a great description. There's a lot of um, similes there to show how she feels about him. And and the feeling that I got from that was that she kind of is more disdainful. Like, she's almost, like, disgusted by this person. But what struck me as well is, like, two pages later... 
or a page later, she's talking to her um, therapist, and the, and she refers to this scene as her, her feeling pity for the old man. But I did not get a sense of pity. I I straight up thought that she felt like grossed out. I don't know. Well, the the scene itself, in terms of, because the whole opening chapter is framed as a conversation with her therapist, or if it's not primarily framed that way, that's a huge chunk of that chapter. And it is used by the therapist as a moment of empathy because her kleptomania basically means that she is hurting people and even knows that she hurts them and can't stop, can't stop herself from stealing. And doesn't she steal something from him and then return it, or does she just steal it and feel bad? I think she just steals it and feels bad. Uh, she steals the screwdriver from him, right. but she doesn't return it, and it's actually one of her favorite pieces right, that right. she puts on her little table shrine. Yeah, um, their kind of embarrassment embarrassment shrine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, I definitely read it as kind of menacing. I mean, she definitely undoes him and describes him in the, as a sort of pathetic... I think at some point, too, she even... There's a line about his, his kind of like soft white flesh. That, wait, yeah. did yours include that? I'm not yeah, sure which yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah. So there is kind of this predatory sense, not that she's threatening, but that she, yeah, she views him as kind of a pathetic, vulnerable figure. And I wasn't. I mean, I was kind of intrigued. Uh, the opening chapter with her is so tonally. I don't know. It's not so wildly written, but it is. She's clearly got a serious condition, and I, I was intrigued. And then the fact that yeah. it just gives up on that, I, it took me a second to like get back into the novel. I think I was a little bit upset that it took that from me. I was like willing to go with that character. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm yeah. intrigued by this person. Like, what's going to go on with her life? What is her? What jobs does she do? What are her friendships like? So it, it, switching it like it has is was bold. I think it's ultimately been enjoyable, but that. Like I would say the first three chapters were the roughest because I didn't like being taken away from one. That was, yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way. The um, I was just like, oh, man, this is what a great flaw that yeah. she can really explore. I thought that was so cool. I know. Then to go away is just, it was cruel. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, though, too, because she's obviously, like you described, kind of an object of love for Benny, potentially, and admiration. So that's interesting, too. It's definitely a different reading. Did, did you read her as threatening there or sort of like ominous or something? Yeah, I, the way that I read that is, is that she, she looks down on these people that she's stealing from. And that, uh, like, especially since that the, uh, that she, she does look down on these people and that this, what's supposed to be her, her one person that she felt sympathy towards, actually she doesn't at all. So I was just like, really? Yeah, it was a bit, it did, it does come across as a bit cold and like she can't, even the scene with the person she sleeps with in her apartment is sort of, yeah, yeah there's real detachment there. And she even, there's some language too about how she just expects him to fade away and go away and all that kinds of stuff. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I think my reaction I stated, but it was, it took me a second to find the vibration for this one, for this novel. Cause I just... She really did convince me in that first chapter. I mean, the good news is that as an author, she's able to reset pretty well. And I've been intrigued by almost every story. So, you know, promising signs. I've been impressed by that. But let's jump up to Lou, because I noticed we picked the same page, or at least I think it might be the same page. So Yeah, we did. Yeah. Lou shows up in two chapters. So that's also telling, because not every character does. Wait. 
do they? Maybe every character does show up in two. Maybe I, maybe that's wrong. But he shows up as a ominous, threatening force in multiple chapters. So let's jump to yeah, his story. Lou the- and I think it's Lou, Benny, and Sasha are the ones that have shown up the most. Yeah, so, and we talked about this earlier, so I guess we are going to quote from this one, because my quote first one is from the scene that we talked about where there's some public sex with an underage person, so that's, that is the content warning we talked about, we are going to be talking about it. It's on 53, the quote, it's a longer paragraph, it says, I turn to Jocelyn, but she's gone, maybe my thousand eyes are what tell me to look down, I see loose fingers spread out over her black hair, she's kneeling in front of him, giving him head like the music is a disguise and no one can see them, maybe no one does. Lou's other arm is around me, which I guess is why I don't run, although I could, that's the thing, but I stand there while Lou mashes Jocelyn's head against himself again and again, so I don't know how she can breathe, until it starts to seem like she's not even Jocelyn but some kind of animal or machine that can't be broken. I force myself to look at the band, Scotty snapping the wet shirt at people's eyes and knocking them with his boot, Lou grasping my shoulder, squeezing it harder, turning his head to my neck and letting out a hot, shuddering groan I can hear even through the music. He's that close. A sob cracks open in me, tears leak out, but only two on my face. The other thousand eyes are closed. So it's a lot to it's a lot to assess um, in terms of a kind of disgusting gross out scene with this music in the background and this novel too is presumably you know centering on the record executive is kind of about music scenes and mu- the effects of music and the thought industry around it but yeah i don't i mean there's what do you read into first I, the thousand eyes jump out because she's hallucinating she's was she drunk or on drugs i can't remember things should be analyzed first i was thinking the thousand eyes yes yes i thought that was pretty cool um and and wasn't there um, a either Roman or Greek mythological creature that had like a thousand eyes, like was just covered in eyes and could oh. see everything, but it was kind of like, yeah, I'll have to look that up real quick. I don't actually know. There's a there's a graphic novel series called Monstrous that I read, I don't know, a year, couple years ago, and it had a creature like that in it that was mostly just eyeballs. It's common imagery for sure. I mean, I can even picture in a couple ancient religions, like iconography with big eyes or multi-eyed things, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, it sounds familiar, but I can't picture it. I also His think name that's a little Argus. thing. Argus, oh, yeah. okay. Argus, Argus the yeah. all-eyeballed. But yeah, so it's, it's a hallucinogenic effect, and it kind of narrows in on her humanity there at the end, since it says her, only her real eyes were crying and the thousand are closed. So it's sort of this, you know, disturbing, she wants to hallucinate but can't, or is kind of tripping out, but is also di- disturbingly kept in the scene. Um, in the, I, Again, it's tough to define these things. I guess we should just call it, I guess it is kind of a rape scene, huh? I, I don't know. I, that language is... I'm not really sure because it's consensual, but not. He's an adult and she's a minor, but I, it wasn't illegal. So, but I don't, was, I don't know. It was very uh, obviously it was not consensual on uh, Ray's part, on on Jocelyn's part for for sure. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is such a weird thing to do to your friend, uh, <laughs> as well to put your friend in a situation like that. Um, but yeah, for Ray, I would say that 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 was definitely a kind of. Um, sexual assault for her yeah and so he was, that yeah he was touching that, her the whole time too and like breathing on her neck like it was yeah what it is that whole scene was just so disturbing to me I, I felt like that was the most disturbing scene to me in the book so far yeah certainly there's the Ladal kitty the dictator dynamic later but that's that resolves 
I don't know. It, that, that one's more ambiguous. This is definitely the most intense, yeah, disturbing thing. And it's so, we've, we've unpacked it, and it's, you know, all the imagers, whatever. But let's, I guess, broaden out to just Lou in general, because Lou is a threatening, obviously threatening, and kind of disturbing, disgusting figure who gets kind of a unceremonious exit which feels fitting that he's kind of ashamed and lessened and pathetic i also pulled yeah. a quote from that scene i don't know if you did i did not but uh i thought okay. that was a pretty powerful scene too for jocelyn yeah the the revenge aspect to it the sort of you see these powerful men record executive types these sort of creative, imposing, intimidating figures who can... You know, obviously these two women are, like, hoovered up in, by his influence. They're sort of sucked into his gravity um, and absorbed by that and obviously then exploited and abused and everything because of it. So I think, mm-hmm. yeah, his presence... He also enters the narrative, I think, in a smart way in books like this, which is sort of indirectly. I think it, at some point there's a line about how she thinks her friend has made him up and just has this yeah. kind of imaginary friend who's not right. real and she just wants to have an excuse to get away. So um, do you want to jump to the other scene where he's killed? Because I pulled the quote from that one. Yeah, let's do it. I guess let's keep it consistent, right? Why not? So now we're in Jocelyn's point of view in the sort of Lou, old, pathetic, and disabled scene. He's bedridden and everything, the old man. And this is from Jocelyn's point of view. It says, The anger squeezes, it mashes me from inside. My arms ache. I reach underneath Lou's hospital bed. I heave it up and over the... And he so he slides into the turquoise pool and the ivy needles tear out of his arms, blood spinning after it, feathering in the water and turning a kind of yellow. I'm that strong even after so much. I jump in after him. Ray is shrieking now. I jump in and I hold him down, lock his head between my kneecaps and hold him there until everything goes soft and we're just waiting lou and i are waiting and then he shakes flailing between my legs jerking as the life goes out from him when he's absolutely still i let him float to the top and then it's revealed that that was like a dream scene (laughs) she is imagining killing him yeah but i can't tell you how strongly i reacted because not that it's unexpected there's tension and she's sort of critiquing him but he's so bedridden and so out of it and everything he can't really respond to her he's just this shadowy figure in a bed and just sort of barely can you know communicate coherently but i really was hoping the book was going to commit to a turn like that it didn't obviously and that's fine it still it doesn't lose its like potency i don't think very much but i when i the paragraph was happening i was my mouth was agape and i just thought holy shit she's really doing it like this is going to be this book is going to be like this <laughs> like yeah. this book is going to be really violent and filled with bloody kinds of revenge and really just it you know i guess like blood soaked and just kind of wild and you know it obviously pulls back and that's it's it's a bit more of a staid reserved kind of book i I suppose it's still has its moments but yeah i just i wanted that scene to i guess be real so badly or whatever (laughs) or not a dream yeah i just uh, i thought that it was a really powerful scene too um especially since the way that she kills him is between her legs which is like wow just in your face symbolism there but what what really got me too was that his reaction when she's like obviously she she's like I wish that you would just die or whatever and he just kind of laughs it off and he's he makes yeah. it into a joke and it's just and I feel like the idea of power and powerlessness is probably the biggest theme that I've picked up on so far mm-hmm. in this book and just the the power dynamic there where again Lou is just asserting that you know even though he's bedridden and he's like 
I mean, he's he's so old and sickly, but he's still the one with the power, and he gets her to hold his hand yeah. and like be and nice kind to of him be at the end. Between him, and it's sort of yeah. even in that he's it's back mirroring the scene that we read, the sex scene or the forced the rape scene in the bar. Yeah, it has a sort of similarity too because of how close they are, and he's got them both, and they're kind of like enmeshed in his grasp or whatever. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, in that sense, I don't know. Maybe that's where I, when it hit that turn, maybe that's why I wanted it so bad. I wasn't thinking that actively at the time because I think the scene, again, it had such a quiet, simmering tension that I was, that I did think was well written. And I was like, oh, this is a creepy way to revisit this kind of, again, lessened character. But you're right, though. I think the other quote to pick out, you nailed it, is when he assert, reasserts himself and he can just even laugh off comments like that, that even he cut to the core of him. It doesn't seem to bug him. The only thing that gets to him, I think, is the son comment. But he, but then he kind of feigns ignorance or sort of like memory lapse. Right, right. So, yeah. The the son thing is interesting, too, because in in, in Jocelyn's chapter, she... Did they have a sexual relationship as well? Like Jocelyn and Roth, were they... Because they were the same age. And when she went to live with Lou, Lou was yeah, like having like up these on parties. The kind of. And they're, yeah. they're definitely intimate, but not... I, they, I didn't read that into it. It was just sort of that they had a kind of closeness of friendship. Maybe even a I think kinship, it, I, I, I thought that it said that he lost his virginity to her. It could be on it, it. It would read, I think, cleanly either way. I didn't. I don't think I had a strong. I'm sure if there was a line like that, I must have, yeah, just mentally skipped over it or something. But no, I think yeah. that makes sense either way. She's yeah. in kind of his orbit, and that's another way for her to get back at him, in sort of a way. And I don't know. Again, because we move around so much and jump time, that yeah. I don't know what their relationship turned into and I think I mean we meet his son when he's much younger and they're on the safari vacation so we get a little bit about him and kind of his role in, in Lou's life and everything but I don't I'm not sure if is it clear that he committed suicide right but they only mention it yeah they only mention it Jocelyn's okay. the one that brings it up but gotcha yeah oh and so, the sister right because the sister is the one who says like at the age of 28 he he killed himself after okay. not talking to to Lou for like years or something yeah like that. so I wonder maybe it was a fight over over Jocelyn I don't know but I, I also wonder too if the narrative will go back to these characters so right. I'm maybe yeah. it will so yeah no I think that Lou dynamic it, Benny's definitely the I don't know, the center of gravity or what have you. But I think the Lou storyline did captivate me the most. I think I did enjoy Ladal's like story, though it felt <laughs> um, totally pretty distant from the rest and kind of absurdist almost. Whereas mm-hmm. this is these all feel more grounded and sort of realistic. Uh, any, any thoughts on Lou before we move away from him as sort of a music executive archetype? Or let, let me phrase it this way. This is how I was just thinking about it. As someone who's never deeply researched the music industry, I mean, I listen to a lot of music and love music, but I don't. I know record executives are kind of these legendarily egotistic figures, and there's these huge stories of big deals and big money and big drugs and whatever. I've just never had any interest in researching the music industry. I, I don't really watch the movies about it. I don't do docs about it. Do you think that this book almost assumes that you know or care about the inner workings of the music industry a little bit because it's like i think this book assumes that you know the power influence and like kind of coolness that these people should have 
I, I don't know if the book goes far enough to portray it obviously does it goes out of its way to show how they're kind of subtle and rich and powerful and cool and people are drawn to them and they're magnetic and yada yada but like I don't I think the book is also kind of playing with the idea that you kind of assume that already or kind of know that yeah I, I, I get that feeling, especially with Benny's narrative at the, the second yeah. chapter there. Um, and even the first one when Sasha says that, you know, she works for some music exec who, like, puts gold flakes in his coffee, which is Benny. I was like, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess they, they must make a whole lot of money because they're the ones that are, like, you know, the boss of the the, the musicians or whatever. But yeah. I had never thought about that before. But, yeah, it's like little, little tidbits about their wealth. And I'm like, ah, I hadn't thought about them having giant mansions and having that much power and pull over people but it makes sense it's just something i've never thought about well i just think and i think the complexities not complexities but the sort of nuances creep in if you hear executive you obviously think wealth but i think that the music exec has its own kind of legendary archetypal status or something because it's the creative field crossover so it's like Again, if I said executive and then fill in the blank for a profession, you'd assume they're powerful or wealthy. But as soon as record exec comes in, it's like, well, they also must be creative or like cool or they must they have to know current trends and they have to know young people and they have to like. And I guess a lot of with music, at least in other decades, that obviously tied in with like drugs and partying. And so it's just kind of like they can't just be rich and powerful, which they are. They also like lure in young people. And it seems like music more than a lot of creative industry churns young people and it kind of just is always going to churn them in and out and so to be an older person in that position I I don't know again I've assumed a lot of that stuff and I've seen like I'm just saying this based on like fictional (laughs) accounts of music industry stuff I, I have no formal knowledge of this stuff or like famous people in real musical positions of power anyway but I yeah I don't know there's some there's been some characterization in some moments where I just think it's kind of like okay I think the book wanted me to know more than I did but it's done well I don't think the characterizations have been weak or anything but there have been a couple moments where I just think you assume people know much a little bit about music here I think yeah so, yeah. but anyway, but the, everything, yeah, I, I think the way it followed through with Lou, if only the murder had been, had been real, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> put him back into the womb of the pool and bury him, I guess, there. Do you think um, he'll make another appearance? Like, do you think he's, I, I mean, I, fe- well, I feel like we've got to get back to Roth, right? Well, His the son? book has no interest in chronology, so I'll just say yes. I think we will <laughs> see him again, and I bet it'll be with the son. I bet we'll learn why the son committed suicide. That seems like such an obvious, I mean, since they, they've circled his family a lot, so I would yeah. say yes. Um, let's move to one of your quotes. I took up a lot of time there. No, that was, I mean, one of your quotes was also one of my quotes, so yeah. that worked out really well. Um, the other one that I have is on page 103. Um, and this one is whose whose chapter is this? Uh, Scotty. Um, I took a long inhale and turned to Benny. Health and happiness to you, brother. I said, and I smiled at him for the first and only time. I let my lips open and stretch back, something I very rarely do because I'm missing most of my teeth on both sides. The teeth I have are big and white, so those black gaps come as a real surprise. I saw the shock in Benny's face when he saw, and all at once I felt strong, as if some balance had tipped in the room and all of Benny's power, the desk, the view, the levitating chair, suddenly belonged to me. Benny felt it too. Power is like that. Everyone feels it at once. And I was just like, how, how is that a, 
a like a, a tip in power like Scotty is still yeah is it because he's still like the, the the leg up that he had when they were younger was that Scotty was super attractive and very talented musically um, and had the and was dating the woman he was in love with Right, right, or but I can't. I honestly can't remember the dynamic. But everyone was dating the wrong person. Basically, it was that's their right. whole yeah. youth group dynamic. Not youth group church wise, <laughs> but young group of people dynamic. <laughs> yeah, Scotty. Scotty wanted to be with Jocelyn. Jocelyn was with Lou. Um, so Alice wanted to be with Scotty, but Benny wanted to be with Alice, and Ray wanted to be with Benny. Right. Yeah. 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 Nobody was pairing up, but in the end, uh, oh, it's when, sort of a dissension he, there, like a ladder rung thing. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like everyone's um, down the rung from where they should be. There, there's probably something to read into in the end there because of how Benny ends up being hyper powerful or whatever. Right, um, hyper powerful, but then like Jocelyn is probably the happiest because she's married with kids, um, and Jocelyn's not too happy. Scotty's not too happy, so. We don't know anything about Alice except for she divorced Scotty. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just like I, that scene where he says that like power is like that power. He suddenly feels empowered and he thinks that Benny realizes that Scotty is the more powerful. I was like, but how? Like, what is what is it that Scotty believes that he is empowered by? Is it because he's just like, you know what? I don't give a shit. Is it because of his mm-hmm. I don't care attitude that he's superior? So I was just I was just curious about your thoughts on on that particular scene. I, it, it was a very de- complex, thematically kind of dense moment uh, story, even just like the short story itself. I guess the most meaningful thing to point out is that when we meet him in the earlier story when he's a kid, it's not from his point of view, right? Isn't it from it's from one of the girls' points of view? Who is it? Uh, Scotty? No, no, when, when we see when we him see earlier Scott. in the book, when he's young. Oh, yeah, it's from Ray's point it's of view. It's Ray, okay. I couldn't remember yeah. if it was her, Jocelyn, but yeah. it's So that's critical because his impressive stature is it's totally external and it's you know imposed on him like he could be totally empty-headed we know that he stared at the sun and kind of had some like mental damage from that maybe that his he was so attached to his mom that he sort of just like hurt himself by yeah like damaged his eyes so already he seemed kind of unsettled and maybe had that sort of spark of creative musical genius that often pairs well with sort of a a bit of instability or extremities in in the mind like that you have certain reactions to things that are uh, that can lead to trauma and intense, I don't know, emotional turns and such. So I I don't know. There's so many things to read into in this part. Again, the, the fact that we're not in his mind earlier is pretty telling. And then, of course, the fact that none of his musical career aspirations worked out also pretty telling because it shows that he's either comfortable with power or just has no desire for it. I don't know. Uh, what did you think of the... There's one place where he admits... Because he has this whole philosophy about atoms, and that since everything's made of atoms, nothing matters. Everything's the same as everything else. It's you know we're we're a random assembly of atoms, so who cares? Yeah. Nobody can be superior to another because it's all random molecular nonsense and yada yada. But then he has that I- event that he's locked out of at the Met, where he kind of he almost thinks to himself like he could transport through the walls because it's since it's all atoms anyway like who cares i should just be able to teleport inside or or whatever but then he can't and so i don't know there's ways you could read him as sort of a defeated delusional kind of pathetic figure 
Even yeah. even the scene where he smiles and assumes that's his position of authority, that he's showing his dominance because he is almost like beyond shame. I don't yeah. think shameless is even the right word. It's like he's transcended shame through his f- philosophies. <laughs> and so, you know, by detaching himself from earthly things, he's kind of superior. But I don't know. Did you read it sympathetically toward him or sort of pityingly? I guess it doesn't have to be either. I don't know. That... <laughs> it's, um, yeah, his character... <laughs> what... His character and Sasha's characters were the ones that I just found the most interesting that I really wanted to to read more about because I think that they had the the most that I could really analyze as far as like uh, their behaviors because they have insights into themselves. They know that there are things that's different about them that and I just find their two characters the most perhaps insightful of themselves but also the the least willing to change themselves which is yeah perhaps also like there was because um in this chapter too we see scotty scotty sees sasha he meets her right he's he plops the fish on her desk initially um and they just kind of have like a an understanding like uh like they just kind of like look at each other and it's like they know each other almost even though they'd never met before um right but yeah, Scott Scotty's character, I feel like uh, not I don't pity him per se because he's, you know, he's living his life, he's doing his own thing and he feels pretty good about himself. I mean, he helps out the two mus- musicians, right? He gives them Benny's card. Yeah. yeah. He's he's a good guy, like he doesn't partake in the ogling of the woman that his fishing pal does or whatever. He kind of just passes that off and just he doesn't sort of, yeah. yeah, it doesn't, at least I don't think, yeah, my recollection is that he sort of kind of ducks that conversation and is like, I'm not going to joke around with you about that. Like, I don't want to objectify her. Exactly. Yeah. He's like, there's yeah. a reason that they wear sports bras. It's for comfort. And the guy's like, yeah, well, they should, they should just let him run free. And he's like, that would be uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. He's like, all right, that would be Very uncomfortable. Pragmatic. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No, it's, he doesn't seem to want to engage with that. It's, I guess yeah. by the end of the story, we'll see if he ends up being a kind of moral authority with his philosophy, his comfort with himself, if that's something to aspire to. I mean, yeah, if you compare right. him against the other characters who attain material and financial power, I mean, they, they're all as uncomfortable as him or more so. But I don't know. I didn't fully. C- I there's also a sense of delusion to it a little bit that I guess I just couldn't get over the that he the first thing he wants to talk to Benny about is like why are we so different? And I I just didn't quite read that dialogue as him asserting himself or sort of being playful. It almost seemed sincere to me, like he was disturbed by his life. But I, again, there's so much in the narrative in his chapter that he's where he's not. He seems very comfortable with how he's living kind of accepted things and has a philosophy to explain it away so yeah i yeah we might have to revisit him at the end because it's because i didn't get a clean reading on it it's i mean like a lot of the book because of its i don't know kaleidoscopic you know shifting points of view it's like i'm not sure how it's all going to click if it will in the end or like how to read it I think I think that he did kind of feel like maybe his life wasn't like great, especially when he compares it when he initially compared it to Benny's grandeur and stuff. Like his office is mm-hmm. like, you know, amazing Big or desk. whatever. Yeah, yeah. But then I think he realized like it's seeing how Benny seemed anxious about stuff, and it was about 
anxious especially about the appearances because he had two possible clients maybe waiting in the office or whatever he's like I, I think that he realized that that was not actually the life that he wanted to lead so I think yeah. that maybe is connected to his feelings of like I'm more powerful than you I feel more empowered because I, I'm not beholden to others um, but yeah especially when, when Benny said that he had a wife and child I think that jarred if I, if I if I'm not mistaken, that jarred him, mm-hmm. yeah, um, right, into making that comment because it does seem to be something. The divorce is the one thing he doesn't seem to be okay with, or it doesn't. We get the sense that that still bothers him that that happened. So, another fact that we do not have, or a plot detail we don't fully understand. Yeah, maybe Alice is next. <laughs> Could be. Yeah, I mean, honestly. Um, I'll do my final quote very quickly. It's just another exceptionally good turn that this one was for real. And it's when Kitty uh, critiques the general's uh, genocide. So the paragraph leading up to this is, Kitty's face still held the winsome smile she'd been wearing for the general. Dolly watched the actress scan the crowd, taking in the dozens of soldiers with their automatic weapons. Ark and Lulu and Dolly with her ecstatic shining face, her brimming eyes. And Kitty must have known then that she'd pulled it off off, engineered her own salvation, clawed her way back from oblivion, and cleared the way to resume the work she adored, all with a little help from the despot to her left. So, Kitty said, is this where you bury the bodies? And so then it just, <laughs> a rapid descent from there, a slide to the bottom, and we're off to, you know, incredible awkwardness and torture and perhaps death. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's, I don't know, there's not much commentary to say, because this, this story definitely felt detached from the rest, though I think thematically it does work in a couple ways, too. Um mm-hmm as sort of like a, a metaphor or some kind of like synecdoche or something about American success or sort of, she's kind of this, since, since America's media system had discarded her, like used her up and discarded her to see her have this moral victory or something is, is a weird, <laughs> I'm not sure how to read that. It's kind of a strange juxtaposition. It's interesting. Um, and it definitely was not something I saw coming because Kitty, we, we don't get a ton about her leading up to this moment. Um, right. other than that she was damaged, it, you know, and was hurt in the party. And so maybe that's a commentary or those things combine. But I just, yeah, I thought I would shout this out just because like the pool, you know, false murder, this also hit me in a similar way where I thought as soon as that creeps into the story, my brain just completely turned around and was like, oh shit, I have to mentally prepare to read this in a, in a completely different way. Uh, yeah, a very, very nice turn. Kitty as well is an interesting character because she's the one who, um, so Stephanie, who is Benny's wife, her brother Mm -hmm. supposedly uh, assaulted Kitty. And that's why Jules, the brother, went to jail. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't even, okay. So this book is, it's really connecting threads I'm not even seeing. I I didn't even pick that up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he went to jail um, because of that accusation. And then when she was at the court, she tried to uh, recant it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And say that it didn't happen. But they were like, no, we're going to push ahead with it anyway. Right. Um, Right. So that's definitely a story I think that we're going to come back to but after that that's when she became um, like just disenchanted with Hollywood and and with people in authority Um, yeah so yeah she's got a couple lines about liars you know yep yep Um, so it was yeah I'm I'm interested to see uh, Kitty's story later on as well 
I, yeah, I do hope we'll come back to her. And she seems to have survived yeah. because there's references to photos later on of her in the general. Yeah. Uh, who knows, though? That <laughs> I hope she's could not, under, like, Yeah, that could be prisoner. forced, could be capture, could be torture. <laughs> yeah. yeah, who knows? But, yeah, yeah, I think it's kind of a symbol or some kind of extended metaphor or something. I think she's an interesting symbolic character for, yeah. I don't know, rightness. Her and the, see how the names are killing me. I would have picked up that connection if I paid more attention to names. But her <laughs> and Benny's, Scotty, there we go. I was going to say Benny's former bandmate. They Those two together... I wonder what the end of the book will think of those two. Yeah. <laughs> because they're, yeah, so far they're interesting complications to the story. Yeah. Yeah. So, cool. Any other thoughts on the quotes? Otherwise, let's jump into some motifs. Let's do some motifs. Excellent. So let's let's talk motifs. This is our third segment for Book Club Part 1s. This just allows us to put some more coherent thoughts and tie them together and present kind of a, not really an argument, but kind of a little bit of a theory. We each picked a motif that the story's been repeating or messing with. It could be, you know, literary devices, rhetorical things, ideas, themes, whatever. And we want to discuss the ones that we think are standing out. Why don't you go first? I feel like I led the quotes to went on. So what's your motif for the first half? Uh, so mine is the, the color white and gold versus the color mm-hmm. brown. Yeah. Um, which I think also ties in uh, very nicely with the the idea of like the power versus powerlessness, where power is associated with the colors white and gold, and power the feelings of powerlessness are associated with the color brown. Um, so let's start with uh, the most recent. We we were just talking about um, Dolly uh, versus mm-hmm. Ladal. So her persona is Ladal, um, but then after the party where she like all of her guests were burnt by her <laughs> secret wax attack oil attack <laughs> yeah yeah um and she didn't immediately call for emergency services or stop turn off the lights or anything um right we see her at the beginning for when she is Ladal, she's actually blonde. She's uh, got the short bobbed hair. She's Stephanie's boss. She's blonde. She's very um, empowered. She's like a bad bitch, right? She tells um, Stephanie like uh, Stephanie comes in and, and she can tell that Stephanie is unhappy about something. And she said, uh, if you need to take um, a break, if you are feeling upset, then don't come into work because you're going to affect my sales. You're going to affect my business. Right. Um, versus they have a, they have a little banter she, too. It's, yeah. Yeah. A little back and forth. Versus when she is um, introduced to us as Dolly, um, she has this like gray hair. She's kind of uh, she describes herself as brown actually compared to her daughter Lulu's bedroom, which is all pink and rainbows yeah. and very bright. Um, she describes herself as gray and brown, and when she walks in, it's like walking in from um, the Wizard of Oz. Like she's just transported from this brown sepia colored <laughs> existence yeah. to to yeah. that. Um, and we also see in that same chapter that Kitty Jackson is also very blonde um, and she is very powerful even though she's like run down and she's been kind of like she's unhirable in um, Hollywood at the point that we see her she still feels empowered enough to take on a dictator <laughs> um, yeah so or at that least advise instance. a dictator 
Yeah. <laughs> yep. No, oh, wait, sorry. No, you're referring to Kitty. Sorry. Yeah, Kitty. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah I was like, wait a second, but no, I, I lost the thread. Got it. Yeah. D- does take him on. <laughs> yep. Um, and then we also see, um, so with Benny, Benny is brown haired um, and brown skinned. They keep referring to his um, brown skin because um, when he's younger, everybody thinks that maybe he is um, uh, Latino. And then when he's in the super white neighborhood, they think yeah. that he is um, from the Middle East. Yeah, he makes and the transition to post 9-11 terrorists. So, you know, it's yep. really... Yep. Yep. Ignominious American, yeah, transition there. Yep. Um, and so, and he's got a lot of insecurities about that too, because uh, when he makes that list in his chapter of like things that he he writes down, each thing that he's like ashamed of that comes to mind. One of the things is the comment about him being a hairball, which he relates to the fact that he is brown rather than white. Um, so there's that feeling of shame and, and powerlessness in that respect because also when they and when he's with the, the white folks in that super rich neighborhood and the guy's like what kind of name is Salazar anyway Yeah. Um, right. after talking about 9-11 like <laughs> he just like Benny just leaves and he's like infuriated and stuff but he's powerless to do anything about it at the same time and then there's um, Stephanie, his wife, who is a brunette, um, and she and also envies the blonde, blonde partner, yes. tennis partner. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, Kathy, Kathy, the the ultra blonde, right? Um, who's also when she first meets Kathy, she's blonde and she's all in white, like an angel. Um, mm-hmm. And she also describes in the very first um, page of her chapter as well, when she's in the uh, dropping off her kid, she's talking about how the moms, like it's like a carpool of just like this blonde mom with all of her blonde children all wearing white, just piling out of this van and going to school. Um, but she and her family are all brown haired and just, you know, n- not that and they stick out and she feels powerless as well until she takes up tennis um but even then she still feels insecure because she she knows that benny's gonna sleep with kathy ultimately yeah you know Um, we don't once they're partnered up tennis wise we don't get her in the story again directly do we does she ever speak again or like it's it's interesting too because you would assume that's when their dynamic levels out but there there is some commentary about how she's like ah you know i got better but i wasn't as good as kathy and she talks herself down a little bit and self-critiques but which kind of befits what what happens with her character in that chapter with the doubt and everything but yeah we never really see her again I, i don't really get a sense of yeah, she's more of like an ominous ghost <laughs> than a than a person to be like spoken to or with, you know. Right, and and what's funny too is like she's so she thinks that Benny is cheating on her with um, Kathy, but right. she's also sneaking around with Kathy just in a different way. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I just thought that was funny the the different types of betrayal with the same person really yeah um, going on there the the obsession with this ideal this this blonde pure white ideal but in different ways um, yeah yeah and then we also in that same chapter we are introduced to Noreen who tries to fit in right she um, she's described as somebody who is. Uh, blonde but has very obviously colored her hair blonde because it's not a natural blonde yeah, the outcast. and she yeah exactly she just sits in the corner um 
of the fence, which is ultimately where Stephanie goes and sits too, is right next to Noreen, um, and they're both the outcasts there because they're not they're not the the ones in power. Yeah. So, um, and then finally we have like from from their youth, the Ray and Jocelyn uh, versus Alice, where Ray and Jocelyn both. Um, I don't know what color Ray's hair is. She doesn't say anything about her hair, but she does talk about her freckles, which are brown. Yeah. And f- the the freckles are a source of of anguish for her because she thinks that she's unattractive because of them, which Lou actually addresses later, which was nice of him. And he says, somebody's going to absolutely love you and they're going to love your freckles. And well, this is, just, yeah, that's know. how that's part of his eerie creepiness, though, is it's. It's always sex, you know, with Lou yeah. <laughs> or something. It's like yeah. even when he's being kind, he's being off-putting and predatory and things. Yeah, <laughs> I think predatory is is a great way to put Lou. That's that's yeah. the perfect word for him. <laughs> yeah, one of his rare um, acts of kindness in air yeah. quotes, kindness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and then Jocelyn is also very dark-haired, um, and then we have Alice. And Alice is blonde, rich. Um, she gets everything she wants, right? She gets Scotty, which is what she wanted. Of course, she divorces later. Um, but um, she's the golden child, right? Even even her sisters her sisters are, are brunette, too. But Alice is the, the one blonde, um, which yeah. is pretty telling. Um, and Jocelyn, and so far we've seen Jocelyn and Ray, their, their perspectives have been fairly negative. Um, we haven't gotten Alice's perspective, but we do know that Alice does get what she wants in the in the end of that, um, the in in the end of Ray's chapter, anyway. Yeah, no, that's a great one. I and I barely picked up on that. I think of the hair, especially in the suburbs chapter. That was that was standing out to me, but I had not crossed over to all those other chapters. So, excellent. Yeah. Any other thoughts on those? That's good. Um, nope, I'm good. Thanks. Okay, I got to keep an eye on it now in the second half. The, the identity with the hair stuff definitely is, was potent. Um, and I noticed, too, isn't in Ladal, you may have also mentioned this in your analysis, but doesn't she do something to her when she finally has to go meet the dictator? Doesn't she, like, recolor her hair? Or does she just, like, dress up again or something? Yeah, uh, her daughter Lulu says, Mom, can you be blonde again? And oh, so then yeah. before she meets the dictator, she, she goes back to being blonde. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Uh, my motif is going to be when the party ends, which feels like the right way to say it for record executive party types yeah. <laughs> who are wildly <laughs> successful. So, yeah, I think this this story, the kind because of, when you're reading a story like this that is a bit experimental and shifts like this one does, I was reaching for things to tie t- together. You know, I was like reaching at thematic strands to see what I could p- tug on because it was just tough to keep up. And especially too, the chronology adds another layer where it's like, okay, we're not even yeah. going in order. I don't know who knows who at this point or who can refer yep. to whom and what relationships exist or don't and why they matter or don't. So anyway, I think when you're, when you read it that way, uh, you have to just pick at something. And yeah, these are all portrayals, almost all, there's maybe two or three exceptions to people who's Success has run out, and the party the party's over. Uh, Benny, in his chapter, 
his direct chapter, I should say, has a little bit of this moment. There's the virility thing, the sexual um, kind of awakening he re-experiences there. That That's obvious. I'm not even going to pick that. I was just thinking the music, how he really wants to be hands-on again, how he seems bored by his executive job. And so he goes to listen to the music, the the girls notably, the women playing it. That There might be that element mm-hmm. too with his virility. Um, but how he sort of like feels it again. There's some really potent descriptions of him just kind of, he wants the music to drown out his sort of brain. He wants to feel the walls shaking. He wants to be deafened by it. And it turns out the music just sucks at the, like, and he doesn't yeah. even, he can't tell when they leave it. It's his assistant who has to be like, man, that was terrible. Like, we're definitely not going to sign them. <laughs> we're definitely not going to pay yeah. them for their new record. And he just doesn't, he just can't pick up on that anymore. He's aged out of the, he doesn't know, you know, he's just sort of attracted to something. He's clearly lost the touch. Uh, and is attracted to the feeling that is gone. Um, so that was the first time I noticed it. The the Lou thing with his son was another pretty meaningful moment, how he seems extremely stricken by that, and is, but also doesn't, kind of pretends to, I don't know if he's pretending or if he can't actually remember it. Do you remember that scene? Yeah, I think that he was just trying to brush it off. But yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I feel, did I pull the quote for this? I wonder. No, it's just the okay. No, the quote here doesn't matter that much. It's just him, yeah, her remembering the first kiss with his son, Jocelyn, that is. And then, yeah, he's talking about Rolf and how Rolf is, is gone. But, that, I mean, the whole, <laughs> Lou's whole fall, precipitous, between him being a domineering, predatory record exec guy who comes in and out of town, super rich, condo, whatever, all the trappings. And then, of course, we see him on his literal deathbed, most pathetic he'll ever be. Even then, though, he does still have that sort of veneer of control, this veneer of dominance about him. But still, mm-hmm. he's so clearly fallen, and there's the fantasy of his death. We really analyze that and everything. But I, another you know, meaningful thing for that motif is seeing him be that low. Let's talk about the only thing we haven't yet, the the Bosco chapter, or at least the Bosco scene. I think we've talked about the chapter with Benny's mm-hmm. wife, but the, he was the, I think his moment is when I actually thought, okay, this is a major theme of this work is what do you do with these people, whether they're musicians or executives or just, you know, everyday people, whatever. But when they're at the end of it and they don't have it anymore. So his self-proclaimed like suicide death tour I think it's when this became the most obvious to me and I thought I would pick it. What, how do you read that? Cause it's, he's obviously physically unwell. He's kind of lost the touch. He doesn't, he might have the creative spark, but can't physically do it anymore. He seems depressed. And he, he says things on this page on 129, like, don't you get it? That's the whole point. We know the outcome his death, but we don't know when or where, or who will be there when it happens. It's a suicide tour. And then later he says, reality TV, hell, it doesn't get any realer than this. Suicide is a weapon that we all know, but what about an art? And then her brother thinks it's genius. How do you, what are you reading into that then? Does it fit with this motif? I, yeah, I think so. It's, um, it's the, I also read into it like a, a lot of the nostalgia, right? When you were talking about uh, this particular scene, he's nostalgic for the ideal that he was before the, the idea right. of him being this, um, super fit just crazy guitarist and then with Benny when you were talking about um, Benny wanting to sign on or, or re-sign these sisters and, and Sasha saying yo that music sucked um, it, it, the reason is that he remembers like half of that uh, chapter was about his remembering 
the first time that he heard them and how amazing he thought they were and his faith that they can do it and that and while he's like listening to them jam out he's like yeah like this is great but I think it's tied to that nostalgia so it's yeah a lot of it is like uh, self-destruction because of nostalgia almost (laughs) yeah he just wants to be in the room again sort of a thing yeah bosco too though his is more vitriolic or something his is well i mean he also labels it suicide so there's (laughs) obviously he's pushing it quite literally uh to the fore in a you know much more intense way but he just yeah he seems it's caustic or uh controversial uh uh, what am I trying to say? Conflict written? I don't conflict forward with him. But yeah, he he I think has like a vendetta against the world. Benny just seems more lost to me. Yeah, you know, yeah. like pathetic. I guess would be. I don't know. Do you? How did you read that? I, maybe it's the wrong dichotomy. But um, what do you think? Pathetic compared to Benny? Is Benny's worse? I don't know. I don't. Uh, I got a better sense of Benny, and I. And I think that Benny, in some ways, is more pathetic because we get more insight into his like his mind and how he's just like riddled with shame about certain things from his past. Mm. But with Bosco, because we we only see it that just that glimpse. Yeah, I would say for me, I, I felt like Benny was more more pathetic in in some ways. Mm. Yeah, even there, though he's there's more a certain, successful. There's a certain power to owning things, or you know, being really clear-eyed and not trying to suck gold down to, <laughs> to right. change your life or whatever, whatever whatever yeah. money gives you or affords you. The final person then that fits this motif just perfectly is Ladal. Her her arc, her plot arc is literally about this. It's not even, <laughs> this isn't even subtext or subtle or me tying things together. This is just, this is it. I mean, her whole thing is a fall from grace. She's desperate for work, wants to care for her family, and so, you know, takes up this dictator or PR campaign but there's some some quotes from when she does when she is literally dealing with the outcome that I think are worth poking into it says as on 142 the accusations later that she'd done it on purpose she was a sadist who'd stood there delighting as people suffered were actually more terrible for Liddell than watching the oil pour mercilessly onto the heads of her 500 guests then she'd been protected by a cocoon of shock but what followed she had to witness in a lucid state they hated her they were dying to get rid of her it was as if she weren't a human but a rat or a bug and they succeeded so this is something this is again an outsider's point of view and I have no interest really in nonfiction on the topic <laughs> but I think in, in music and creative industries Hollywood type industries that there is this sense that sometimes you just can't get rid of people like once you're ingrained in the power structure you just can't shake them and this could be true I guess in any mm-hmm. industry but but there is this kind of like I guess Harvey Weinstein is his own unique rancid example because of his sexual attacks and predation and stuff so i guess i don't know if he's Mm -hmm. i don't think he's an outlier in that that doesn't happen but he might be an outlier in how far he took it or like the power he accrued with it i again i can't speak on that really i just he's the one that came to mind um because i've never like done a nonfiction dive on this (laughs) i'm like who you know the executive history in hollywood but anyway the point i'm making is that little turn there for her and how it led to this fall of grace this sort of idea that like people will turn on you whenever they can and if it's convenient and worthwhile they're just gonna and, uh, immediately abandon ship there's no loyalty basically in in those mm-hmm. arenas that i think read it pretty true and i think i mean that is the best summation of it in the in the novel the other characters you have to read a little bit more subtly to um 
pick at this thread. But yeah, for her, it's just that's kind of the summation of Hollywood problems. Yeah. Um, it brings to mind, too, like, so her whole thing is like a, a party literally ended her career. For Benny mm-hmm. and Stephanie, too, the party was like the end of the honeymoon phase with the neighborhood, which then led to. Oh, yeah the the excessive need to somehow fit in um which ultimately led to their divorce i assume with both of them needing kathy to fulfill some sense of belonging there um so yeah the the if you're going to a party there's going to be an end to something it seems like in this book so and i i didn't even know <laughs> you nailed it there with the kind of symbolism of that I didn't even intend to call it the end of the party with that in mind, but yes, <laughs> she threw the party of her career, everyone attended, all people of meaning and note in her life and in the industries, and then yeah, she, yeah, and literal end of the party, so a perfectly yep. fitting, a tied a bow on it for sure. Unintentional. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts on the, on that motif? Did I, did I miss anybody? Did I don't anybody think so. I think you did a great job with that. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I think, I think we will yeah. not. That will not be the end of success. Of well, I was going to say that that will not be the end of the end of people's success. I think I'm just rambling now, but that's <laughs> that will not be the last person we see fall from grace or success. Let's put it that way. Just try and tie a verbal bow on it. Okay. Um, any other? Well, let's not do another motif. It's 11 p.m. here. I need to go to bed. <laughs> I was going to throw it out there for more. Let's not. You're on vacation and I'm tired. Let's make a list, shall we? Let's end with a list. So let's do it. our final part one book club segment is always to make a list, or at least that's the way we've redesigned this bad boy. And so we're going to do a top three. And we want the top three moments with music. I don't... This is an odd novel, Amanda, because I didn't cover this at the top of the pot. I guess I should cover it now. I chose this book, well, one, because I'd read a good review of it years ago, and the copy had sat on my shelf for like five years. So <laughs> that's the number one reason I chose it. But the second mm-hmm. reason is when I was looking at my big unread shelf and just picking stuff, I, the fact that this was supposedly about music, it felt like a topic we'd never explored, either in fiction or nonfiction. So that was why I picked it. Do you think it's lived up to that? <laughs> do you think it's? Do you think it's about music? I mean, kind of? I think that music is one of the threads that's being interwoven through, but it's definitely not, I would not say that this is a novel about music. Yeah, me neither. And that's fine. <laughs> it's it's okay that it has different, because I think it's succeeding at most of what it's doing. <laughs> so I think I'm okay yeah. with it. But yeah, I once I hit one of the third or fourth chapters, I just thought, okay, this is not going to be about the inner workings and dynamics of making and producing and selling music (laughs) there's not going to be like tour scenes and bust scenes and you know behind the scenes and somebody party and ODing and I don't know I don't know what I imagine but (laughs) this is quite quite a different thing no no question though I will Mm -hmm. say there were just good moments with music so we'll get into it in our top threes I don't it's let me down kind of if I can even say it with that negative connotation Um, anyway yeah let's dive in what's your number three moment with music uh, mine is the stop go performance um, when okay. Benny goes to listen to the sisters, and I just I loved the way that it was described. Like Benny's p- 
pure joy and he's like yeah more cowbell and like he's just like really into it i i loved that and then the the contrast to the reality when he's like hyperventilating and leaving and sasha's like yeah that was crap this was I just, yeah I, I this was my scene. number one by far yes oh, i thought yeah. this was yeah. like this is when i thought maybe if the rest of the novel is moments like this or evoking things like this you know it's putting words in that sense it's poetic it's putting words to things i've felt or maybe thought or you know that have shaken me but i've never articulated yeah this was my number one for sure yeah i i loved that scene. couple descriptions from that page he calls it a zenith of lusty devouring joy which again there might be some of that virility stuff mixed in there <laughs> um yeah it was a faculty deeper than judgment or pleasure that communed directly with his body he calls it a shivering bursting reply made him dizzy uh, and then of course he does get erect so th- these things are tied up together for sure yeah. uh, maybe mm-hmm. no surprise then that he seizes the cowbell and stick and begins whacking it with zealous blows um yeah. But yeah, no, it's like he, I guess it does end with a cliche, he was on fire, but maybe that's kind of the humor of it too, is that there's some, I think, pretty engaging, insightful moments, but then yeah, it ends with he was on fire, uh, exclamation point. So maybe maybe it is poking at that a little bit, kind of silliness, mm-hmm. of course. And then at the end, crucially, we're told with, you know, disdain that it was trash music. <laughs> so <laughs> that is meaningful too. But no, I thought th- when I saw that snippet, I immediately thought, like, okay, maybe this will be what the novel is. And then, of course, it's been 10 other things. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That was, that was my number one. How about your two? Uh, my number two was uh, when Benny's music group, when he was in the punk band with Scotty, um, that mm-hmm. whole scene, not just because of uh, Ray's um, discomfort, that scene of discomfort but also like what was going on with the stage like they're getting stuff thrown at them and scotty's like taking off his shirt and like whiplashing people in yeah, the face and they're getting back. like a mob started yeah it was like what a, a chaotic crazy scene that i could totally imagine um and then at the same time like ray is getting assaulted like yeah yeah in the yeah. crowd yeah um, so it just adds to that sense of of chaos and just violence and stuff and those underground um, punk shows exactly so i was like yeah you can't get much more punk than that so well the verdict (laughs) is in then amanda i have this was a bad one because that's my number two and i think the fact that we're overlapping means it is a bad idea for the list (laughs) i will own that i will 100 percent own that that i yeah that's really funny totally unintended so fantastic yeah, I don't have much to add other than I've only been in my life to two, maybe two shows that kind of had a, kind of had a vibe like that. Definitely not as intense though. Definitely not. But uh, yeah, I think that is the, um, it, it just felt really visceral and it's kind of that underground scene type punk music that you can't, yeah, it's kind of hard to capture that in words, but it's, it's urgent, it's violent, it's weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's them fighting back too, which I thought was really essential in a way. And yeah. so, because mm-hmm. um, it does kind of feel combative. It's I also feel like, and I've never been party to a scene like this, but I feel like bad stand up has to feel that way. It's kind of like a fight <laughs> in a weird where yeah. it's like this music sucks and we're gonna be fighting about it. And stand up, I bet gets that way too. It's kind of con- adversarial, confrontational. So, anyway, okay, maybe your number one and my number three won't match because <laughs> we've just they don't. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what's your number one? My number one is um, when Scotty gave Benny's um, card to the two punk uh, junkies. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And, and the reason that I chose that one as, as my number one is that even though it's not necessarily like it's not with music playing or anything like that, but I thought that that was such a powerful scene to show to show that Scotty is like, you know, he's essentially a really good person. He wants to help these people, but also just like how how little he cares to be a part of that that music scene anymore and how little he cares to keep in touch with Benny. Um, yeah, so I thought yeah. that that was a really just and and then for the the two guy the the girl to and the guy to to be so thankful and and like nice about it too and just be like no really thank you so much dude like I just thought that that was such a a, a great a great scene to show like just genuine like kindness but also just like you know letting things go letting the nostalgia go not needing that in your life. Yeah, I think we'll. I, I hope by the end I'll, we'll have a clear reading on him. But it, maybe it's a novel that won't provide those those clear conclusions or something, which is you know, it's, I mean, enjoyed by us, <laughs> uh, fine by us. But but no, it is it is intriguing too. It's interesting because I it's yeah, it's a re- kind of rejection of his privilege in a way because he could take advantage right. of it but doesn't, and then it's also kind of underscores the randomness of chances like that and how you just mm-hmm. sort of walk into things wander into things and yeah it's it's strange times um yeah but but fascinating too good connection fitting enough too that they seem to be drugged out that's his assumption i guess i'll <laughs> yeah. end with my number three because we did this we lined up so well impressively i'd say let's let's give ourselves some credit i suppose i just thought the whole idea of the bosco death tour deserved a mention just because I don't know. I like thematic tours. I definitely do not ever want to go to a suicide tour, so I'll just get that on the record, I suppose. It's worth uh, being explicit about that. But I do love tours that are themed around something. I also am a sucker because I do, for the bands I really get into, I do still listen to albums. And so I do love an album-based tour where they just play the whole album. I've gone to a lot of concerts like that, which is kind of, I don't know, unique maybe just to the bands I like or something. But I love little premises and hooks like that where it's like ah we're gonna i mean obviously bands tour when they have new music so that's that's just the, that's typical it's kind of the standard yeah but i do love a themed tour or just sort of a little has give me a little niche uh or not niche a little hook give me a little hook to the tour yeah i'm into that i like that yeah no death tour for me though i'm good uh, yeah I would Pass. not want to go to a suicide tour yeah or I, a murder I, tour have Either you ever one. been to a farewell <laughs> tour uh, have I? I don't think so. I, hmm. I I don't know. I don't think so. There are at least a couple bands that I would I would pay up big to go see some farewell shows. There's a couple in my in my future that should should fate time money allow. I will I will pay up handsomely to see a couple bands farewell tours. I did miss Rush, which was too bad, but their their drummer passed on a kind of unexpectedly, so that was a shame. But I'd saw I'd seen them a couple times before that happened, so very grateful for that. Those those were great shows. But yeah, I I don't know. There's definitely a couple where all you know health and and fate permitting, I will be. <laughs> I will be paying handsomely to whatever it takes to see a couple farewell tours. So, yeah. Anyway, but no, none then for you, huh? You didn't do like a. I don't even know who in our lifetime has done a really memorable. Cause it seems like no one retires. Like everyone plays shows until they just 
pass unexpected. Like, is Elton John going to do a farewell tour? That guy never stops touring. <laughs> uh, Eric Clapton has kept touring and kept being like a weird, he's like a far right guy now, which is its own weird wrinkle. Um, not what I would have predicted from his coked out and, you know, heroined out 70s and 80s or whatever, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, life is a long road, I suppose. Uh, so that's, you know, that's what he's up to. But no, I um, who's the Beatles guy? Uh, I'm so uh, bad with McCartney. names. Yeah, McCartney. Paul McCartney. It feels like yeah. he's farewell toured a hundred. Like, is he still touring? <laughs> Probably. I feel. It, yeah. it, I feel like he still like releases music. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I mean, to him, it almost seems like he's doing people a favor because I think he's trying to let everyone see him who wants to, which obviously there's a bit, you know, that's a massive um, number. Like there's an incalculable number of people that want to see him play. So to him, it almost seems like a public good he's doing, like a service. (laughs) Like, okay, I'll just tour again. Like, please get tickets this time because I can't (laughs) I can't do this, you know, for 20 more years. Like, (laughs) uh, funny. So... Uh, anyway, yeah. Um, and hopefully, you know, hopefully he can tour for however long he wants. Um, okay. Any other musical moments to, to speak of or that you wanted to analyze, talk about? I don't think so. Okay. Well, we hit all my big ones and we overlapped nicely, so congrats to us. <laughs> Any other thoughts on the first half so far? Uh, no, I'm, I'm just really eager to see how, how everything is laid out at the end there because the back of the book says that it's all about is supposed to be the connection specifically with Sasha and Benny. So I'm intrigued how it's just, I don't know. I find that such a, (laughs) that's such a bad description of what this is. I don't, it's it's, the Benny thing. I kind of shrug at and think like that, even that's a reach, but, but fine, you know, like, okay, I get it's, you gotta make it make sense for experimental and sort of bold things. You have to try and explain them, but the Sasha thing, come on. She's a she's a tertiary character at this point. Right. Like I would call right. it about Lou and Benny and dominant powerful men in the like that if I had to give my two character summary, it would be those two so for me so far, just because of their their sway in the narrative, but I don't know. Yeah. Maybe she'll come back. So Okay. Yeah, no, I've I'm quite enjoying it, but like I said, it was I plummeted in chapters two and three and she's resuscitated me. She's got the helicopter and dragged me back up uh, i'm enjoying it so <laughs> it's come around i've come around on it nice yeah i'm yeah. I, I'm enjoying it so far yeah yeah I'm, i am too i what did we read recently that was not great i can't even remember a good family yeah so this is a nice this is a nice comeback for us i think fiction fiction wise yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think this has been pretty well realized and interesting so and lots to think about after the fact which is its own pleasure and you know i think we we enjoy books like this too i don't think i would take if this book were 20 percent more complicated or unpredictable kind of strange then it might have worn out i might have you know worn off on it or kind of worn out its welcome but i think this is just the right balance it's approachable but definitely experimental so yeah, it's it's almost I'm approaching it the way that I read it um very similarly to how I read uh short story collections where like mm-hmm. it, in Weinsberg or something like that where I know that somehow it's going to attach itself somehow to Benny's life. Um so I'm always looking for that thread as I as I read, but and I and I try to read one chapter at each time. Um, instead of halfway through just to make sure because it's like short stories I just have to complete it so yeah 
Yeah, I think that's well said. Well, great. Those are our thoughts on the on the first half of Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. We appreciate and thank you as always for joining through the first half conversation. If you enjoyed the talk or want to keep up with us, we'll be posting the part two book club for this very novel next Friday. We always post our book clubs on Fridays, unless I forget or there's a vacation, which does happen to me. So, <laughs> But check the feed. We keep all the episodes up in the archive in the feed, so you can always go back, read a different book, check out a different discussion. And yeah, next Friday, part two for this one will be coming out. Again, we're on Facebook and Instagram at at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word, so we appreciate those follows. And uh, just, yeah, reach out to us there, chat with us about the books, and any podcast platform you're on, we appreciate ratings and reviews. That helps a ton, so if you can leave those on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you are. I think we're up on Amazon and Google, a couple other places. Anyway, it helps a bunch. We'll see you next week for the back half of this book and the analysis and the discussion. Until that time, we'll see you between the pages. (laughs) 